I do love a good stat. Hello and welcome to Real Versus Feel, Netball Numbers That Matter, a podcast with me, freelance journalist Erin Dullahunty and Dr Aaron Fox, a lecturer in applied sports science and research methods at Deakin University. In this weekly show, we align what it feels like happened in the first round of finals in the Super Netball over the weekend to what the stats, that's the real, tell us. Real versus Feel is supported by All-in-One Property, a dedicated property service provider. When buying a home, you often have to juggle conveyancing, finance, insurance and property law paperwork, and it can be overwhelming. That's where All-in-One Property comes in, handling it all. Visit allinoneprop.com to learn more. I'd like to acknowledge I'm on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people in Echuca, and Aaron is on Wadarung land in Geelong. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Well, Aaron, we had an extra time thriller and another chapter in the growing rivalry between the Melbourne Vixens and the West Coast Fever in the first round of the finals. I mean, it was a pretty good, pretty good start, you'd say? Yeah, I'm not really sure how to feel about the weekend because probably the two teams that I wanted to win didn't win. Oh, um, really? You're so, on the Swifts. Yeah, oh, I don't know. I just felt like it, it, that that's who I wanted to win at the okay. time. But, you know, good for the Thunderbirds. I don't really mind them getting to the grand final either. Uh, and now you're going to kick us off with uh, the Swifts and Thunderbirds, which, you know, there's a lot going on. <laughs> I messaged you at... After the game that, you know, the intercept at the end of the fourth quarter was kind of forgotten about in the midst of everything that happened after that. The Swifts had this game, but still managed to lose it. They did. Well, I hope that you read my talking points this week because Taylor Williams got big, big raps for that intercept from me. I mean, I'm sure we don't need to tell any of our listeners that the Thunderbirds won this one 64 to 62 of course, um, after extra time. And I'm very glad I wasn't filing a match report on this one, Aaron, because it really was a thriller. It was fitting, though, I think, that the sides who finished so high on the ladder, they needed extra time in the end to split them. The umpiring, unfortunately, was a talking point out of this game. It was quite lopsided um, if you looked at the penalties. But it was Lucy Austin's shot to tie the score at the end of regular time, as you just said, which sent it to overtime that everyone will remember. But... That couldn't have happened without that mid-court intercept from Taylor Williams, who had only been on the court before, just before halftime. It's kind of been starting on the court, not starting, Hannah Petty's having good games and that sort of thing. So for her to be able to have the calm head to do that was probably the biggest moment out of the game for me. Now, statistically speaking, both sides had a gain-to-goal rate of just 45%, and they both had 11 gains, so they were there to be made. Lucy Austin shot 18 from 20, including 11 from 13 for regular and two from three super shots. Um, The Thunderbirds didn't miss in extra time, which is something that we're going to talk about later on in the episode. And the Swifts shot at 60% accuracy in that extra time. So Sophie Fawns, who hadn't been on the court really until then, she missed two super shot attempts, which proved pivotal, obviously. The Swifts had um, 58 uh, contact penalties, a number they've only reached once before this season. And then also the Swifts only had three intercepts, which sort of talks to the tightness of this game right across. 
Georgie Horges, I mean, she won the MVP, but she probably got forgotten in the wash as well. She had 15 goal assists, 33 fees, 23 of those with an attempt, and 22nd phase receives as well. And also the number of deflections was something that stood out. The Thunderbirds had 18 and the Swifts 17, but they didn't actually turn into gains. This is something we talked about last week on the pod. Uh, the Thunderbirds with just one and the Swifts with just two. Um, now you're going to have a chat to us about the less close one, the Fever Vixens in Perth. Yeah, and I think this is maybe what shaped my disappointment of the weekend. One, the Vixens losing, but two, just like, I don't know whether it really ever felt like they were in it. It was a pretty clinical performance by the Fever in handling their business, winning every quarter by a pretty similar amount and just sort of staying out in front the entire game. Um, Fowler, you know, 96% accuracy, an okay game, I guess, for (laughs) her standards. Um, And... Uh, you know, she they did force three turnovers from her, which mm-hmm. is, you know, probably one of the, the better defensive performances, but it obviously didn't translate to the win. Uh, this was a very uncharacteristic Vixens game statistically, I think, and it yep. probably demonstrates why they couldn't get over the top. They were heavily penalised mm-hmm. uh, with 82, and that's 22 more than the Fever. And the Fever only had eight obstruction penalties the whole game. So, you know, you're normally looking at that. That's very Vixens-like, I suppose, from the penalties perspective. Yeah. And then a similar sort of thing with the gains. The Vixens only had four. They couldn't really force the Fever into turning the ball over. And out of those four gains, they only converted 50% to goals. Um, And and goals from gains were seven to two in the Fever's favour. And so those statistics that the Vixens normally excel in when they win they couldn't get done um and yeah it it was probably a big reason why they lost Uh, and I mean both teams had a high center pass to goal percentage which is something that we've come to expect from the fever across the year in their wins they were at 83 percent the Vixens were at 81 percent and so they looked after the centers yeah yeah all all of that form from the fever in this game is I think what they're going to want to carry over to the next weekend to to try and get into the grand final. Yeah, absolutely. And I know exactly what you were saying about it didn't feel like the Vixens were going to win this one. Looking back post-game of the statistics and seeing that, you know, the Vixens actually held, you know, held a lead at some stage. I felt like they didn't, they re- the same as you, I had that sense that they they weren't in it. But there's, I think that's to do with the RAC arena crowd and that atmosphere that they're able, that that green army, as they call them, are able to build. So, But obviously they don't have that this week in Sydney. So to our first subject today, which I had a great name for, but you corrected me because you had a, be- a better alliteration than me and I can now think that my work with you is complete. Aaron, hmm. that you love yeah, just as I'm, much as I do. <laughs> I'm becoming a journalist, aren't I? <laughs> a pun-filled journalist. So <laughs> we're calling this the perfect power five. So amid the chaos of that extra time in the major semifinal between the Swifts and the Thunderbirds, I didn't realise that the Thunderbirds shot at 100% accuracy. Remembering, of course, that the super shot is in play for all of extra time joy. So Eleanor Cardwell shot one from one regulars uh, and two from two super shots and Lucy Austin put in one. And as we just touched on before, the Swifts only put in three out of five shots for a return of four. And as we mentioned, Sophie Fawns missed two super shot attempts. 
Now, given that this super shot time is well and truly entrenched in super netball and, you know, he's changing the way the game is played, whether that's good or bad is up for discussion. I thought it would be worth looking at how often this kind of perfect shooting is happening in, because obviously we're seeing it in four, you know, in portions of four quarters each week where obviously the Thunderbirds did it in this game, but I would imagine the Swifts would be more likely to be on this list for that accuracy. I mean, let's start this off by saying uh, how great that fourth quarter was, you know, at the end, back and forth with the super shots. I'm pretty sure I sent a message <laughs> at the time just um, to gauge your interest in the game at that point. Uh, so what I did here was collated the shooting statistics from each power five and any extra time periods, because as you mentioned, that's yep. when the super shot is also present. And yep. I think you know, generally they're five minute periods as well. And sort of looked into the shooting percentage across total attempts, standard attempts, and super shot attempts as well. Mm-hmm. And so from 476 power five or extra time periods across, you know, since the super shot's been in play, mm-hmm. there's been 123 of these periods where a team has shot at 100%, which equates to this happening just under 29% of the time. And this was perhaps more regularly than I initially imagined. I wouldn't have thought it was that high, to be honest. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's possible because teams only take a few shots or they're not focusing on super shots. Um, But but it does happen semi-regularly. The most attempts a team has had in a Power 5 period while shooting at 100% is nine, Mm -hmm. and this has been done by the Fever twice, um, and not really heavy I guess, super shot attempts in these um, occurrences. There was Mm. only one of nine of those shots in one of them and three of nine shots in the other time they shot 100% Mm -hmm. from nine shots were super shots. So, um, yeah, the Fever, I think, are are good at doing this, but that's probably because they focus more on those standard shot attempts in, in these periods. Yeah, absolutely. But it is, I guess the point is, even though the numbers might might be reduced and we're talking about, you know, two or three or four, the impact on the scoreboard is so significant. And I guess that's why, you know, while we're talking about it. Now that's the, the positive end. What about the other end of the spectrum, Aaron? Yeah, so I saw on four occasions that teams have shot at 0% in power five or extra time periods. Mm-hmm. I think most people could guess that the Giants are making up a decent chunk of these. They've done this three times and the Firebirds have done it on one occasion. And across these four times that teams have shot 0%, -hmm. there has been only one standard shot attempt in total and 12 super shot attempts across those four periods. So there's probably, if you delved into this a little bit more, there's probably a pretty decent relationship between super short attempts to shooting percentage of i would think yep uh, and uh, you mentioned at the top like you thought that the swifts might be you know a, a prominent team shooting at 100 in these periods mm. um i think that's correct but it's actually pretty even across the board with the teams as to how often they shoot at 100 in these power five periods so of those 123 perfect power five periods mm-hmm. we identified mm-hmm. Um, it's actually level at the top with okay. the Fever, Lightning, Magpies and Thunderbirds having 18 each. Uh, the Swifts are just behind at 17 occasions. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the Giants and the Vixens are actually level with them here on hmm. 13 occasions. Mm-hmm. And then the Firebirds have only done it eight times. So 
it, it it maybe speaks to the the strategies of these teams like the giants they're obviously a heavy super shot team um and not shooting 100 as often as someone like the fever who you know probably take more of those standard attempts but then there are teams who are doing this regularly who you you might consider as taking super shot attempts so uh, i mean it's it mm. probably just depends on your shot selection and the shooters you've got right yeah and i mean as as you touched on then the more that you attempt obviously the more that you're going to miss but we've i guess we've also got to consider the score line as well where you're shooting 10 and 12 super shot attempts in in 5 minutes or across the game it's probably, you know, you're probably chasing down, potentially chasing down a, a lead. I mean, you know, the Firebirds this year, you know, there was a couple of times where they were trying to do that. So I guess there's a relationship with that there. Um, now, our next topic for the pod this week is what I'm calling Keeper Rewards. So in my Fox Nipple Talking Points column, I wrote about Courtney Bruce's fourth quarter being instrumental in her side's win over the Vixens. She'd been really good all game, but she hadn't been spectacular on Kamwenda. She'd had one intercept, one deflection with a gain and two rebounds to her name at three quarter time, which most keepers would take, but for Courtney Bruce, probably a modest return. But as is often the case for the best keepers in the world, Bruce made her mark in that fourth quarter after all that grinding work that she'd done to begin with. So the rebound that she took and the pair of gained deflections that she had in that last really turned the game fever and I think it was a case of that sort of accepted wisdom playing out um so I've asked you to take a look at sort of last quarter brilliance from from keepers this season like when you know is it is it so that when a keeper has better figures in the last compared to the first or earlier in the game or earlier averages does that help their team win essentially is what I'm getting at Mm. so I decided to focus just on players this season, like you asked, and those who have played the whole match in goalkeeper to make this fair, I suppose. Sure. So we can, you know, we're comparing a fourth quarter in goalkeeper to the rest sure. of the game in goalkeeper. And did two things here to answer your question. First, compared the key defensive metrics between the first and the last quarter for these goalkeepers yep. uh, to see if they went up or down from the first to last quarter. Yep. And then second, took an average of key defensive metrics for these goalkeepers from the first three quarters Mm -hmm. to see how far above or below their expected average for that game they performed in the last quarter. Got you, got you. So where does Bruce's game from the weekend sit? The the thing that stood out in uh, Bruce's game on the weekend was her gains in that fourth quarter relative to the rest of the, the match. So if we took her average across the first three quarters mm-hmm. and and compared that to what she got in the fourth quarter, she actually went up at 1.6 gains yep. up on this average from the first three quarters in the last, or in a more practical sense, she forced, you know, almost a couple more turnovers than what you would have expected her to get in that last quarter based on the first three quarters. Mm. So that uptick in performance was there. But amazingly, you kind of expected it as well, right? As a, the feel side of it was... She's getting close. She's going to get one. And when she did that, the I think I described it as a swat for the ages in my column off of Kira where she had sort of, I think she might have had the the left hand over the ball and then as she's released, she's used the white, the, the right hand to bat it. And I think Sunday Ariang picked it up. The I think there was a, a lot of people out there just thought, ah, oh, that's it. That's the one she's been working for. Fever converted that. 
they come back from a timeout, they then have the centre, they convert and the game's over at that point. Mm. That's the one touch, the one moment that you tend to focus on. And, you know, Courtney Bruce, she put in that silly little penalty in the 2018 Commonwealth Games grand final over the shot when she didn't need to. So I think she understands better than almost anyone how those tiny moments can, can make a difference. And Dan Ryan's reaction to that swat on the sideline, he was just a pure fan for a moment, which I really love sort of the two handed fist and sort of bent over just like, uh, you know, in, in excitement for what she'd been able to do. So she definitely got the keeper rewards that, that I was talking about. So that's a, that's a tick for Avril versus feel. Now you also came across some other great last quarter performances from this season whilst you were looking at, looking at this for me. Yeah, I think Jeeva Mentor seemed to pop up a little bit in this analysis as a, a big finisher this mm-hmm. year. So in particular, this match in round five, she had a big step up from the early parts of the match. And despite this being a loss against the Giants, it was a 17 to 10 final quarter for the Magpies that was perhaps really driven from the defensive end. So in this game, Jeeva Mentor had 31 and a half more net points in the last versus the first quarter. Yeah, and this was really driven by five more gains, two more rebounds and two more intercepts. So a big contrast between her first and last quarter. Um, and Mentor also had big last quarters against the Swifts in their round one win. She went plus 23 net points in the fourth versus the last, the first quarter. Mm-hmm. And their round seven loss against the Thunderbirds, uh, she went plus 20 net points in the last quarter versus the first quarter. So, yeah, like I said, that characteristically slow starter maybe this year, Mm. Jeeva Mentor. Uh, And in in a similar vein, uh, round 13, where the Thunderbirds almost snatched victory from the Lightning with a 20 to 10 final quarter. Again, this was perhaps driven by that defensive end, Shamira Sterling was a big factor in this. She increased, you know, we were talking about that average in the relative to the first three quarters in that mm-hmm. last quarter. Mm-hmm. She had, you know, two more gains than expected, two more, 2.7 more intercepts than expected and 26.8 more net points than expected in that fourth quarter based on a three-quarter average. Mm-hmm. So a, a, a couple of examples there of you know, defenders lifting towards the end of the game and sort of bringing their team along with them. Yeah. And I think one final point to make here, it was really interesting to see that the names that featured at the top of this sort of big finishers list were goalkeepers you'd expect, Gina mm-hmm. Mentor, Shamira Sterling, Courtney mm-hmm. Bruce. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Remy Carmo was another player that really kind of linked in here and is perhaps indicative of the type of player that, you know, mm. She is, or she could become in the future, right? Mm. And one of those real, those real grinding down. I think I, re- I know I remember that um, Thunderbirds Lightning game. I'm pretty sure that Sterling had three intercepts in that last quarter and just tried to almost tried, you know, did it on her on her own. And now speaking about big performances, our final subject today is finals performers. In every sport, you hear fans and pundits talking about big game players, players who always stand up in big moments and big finals. Courtney Bruce um, in today's episode as an example. And I wonder, who are those big stage performers in elite netball, statistically speaking? Someone like Janelle Fowler comes to mind. She rarely puts in a bad shift. But which current player has played, there's a bunch of questions here, which current player has played in the most winning finals, I guess, net points, we could probably look at them as a return in finals. And then maybe on the flip side, who 
hasn't got such a good regard in these big games in finals? Well, so we can look at this over the entire ANZ Championship Super Netball years to calculate, you know, the amount of finals players have been in, their win-loss records. Um, but we should note here that, yep. uh, you know, net points that you mentioned has only been present from 2017 onwards. Yep. So when we talk about that, it's more recent years. Yep. Uh, and I've also uh, included here to have counted as playing in a final, the player has to have been on court rather than sure. just listed in the, the team list. So. I guess we'll start with, you know, who has played the most finals across uh, these years. Uh, and the top three all time is first is Laura Langman, 23 finals appearances. Uh, second, someone we've talked about today, Jeeva Mentor with 19 finals appearances. And then number three is Joe Harton with 18 finals appearances. So you can see like, you know, longevity uh, plays a big part in this. Mm -hmm. And if we look at, you know, current active players, the next most on this list are Jamie Lee Price and Steph Wood with 17 and Romelda Aiken-George with 16. You know, Janiel Fowler, you mentioned, she's had 13 finals appearances uh, yep. across her career. Amazing to think those top three are all imports and also that Langman and Mentor probably played all bar, what is Jeeva played, one final probably for the Pies. Um, so what about the good stuff? Who's actually winning when they get there? Who's performing in these finals? Yeah, so despite um, Laura Langdon and Joe Harton being in that top three list for most finals, they're not there for wins. Yep. Um, you know, a top three all-time for wins, number one is Jeeva Mentor with 12, and number two is Laura Geitz with 11, and number three, Ronaldo Aiken-George with 11, mm. uh, which, you know, I probably shared her and Geitz. Those, are, those might even be the same matches yep. uh, and the True. next most for current active players is Steph Wood with 10 wins um, and now like you mentioned net points at yep. the top and so we we might want to use them as an indicator yep. of uh, you know who's had the best finals performances. yeah even if you don't win is, potentially yeah yeah this is from 2017 onwards yep. uh, who do you think holds <laughs> the top three I positions <laughs> I could probably have a guess are the initials JF <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is another one of those circumstances where I sort the data by a certain value, and the the gotcha. name Fowler just pops up. Field at the, populates every field. Of the list, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so irrespective of whether these are wins or losses, because mm -hmm. there's a mix here. She's had net point performances of 125.5. That was in a win. 122. That was in a loss. And 118, which was also in a win. Mm -hmm. um, those not named Fowler actually make up the next two <laughs> spots on the list. Did you add that? And, as, was that the name of your column? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, but they're, they're a little surprising, to be honest. The, mm -hmm. the fourth highest net points in a final was Sarah Clow at 117.5. Yes, still in, didn't, win, didn't win the MVP that day. Played yeah, out of her that, skin. Yes, yeah, Sam Wallace, I think, won the MVP of the game. Yep. Mm, the 2019 grand final win. You obviously mm. know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I do. Uh, and then number five is 116.5. And it's actually Jess Anstis from the Fever's 2021 semi final win. So yeah, right. you got Fowler up the top. But then the next couple are maybe a little bit unexpected. Yeah, there, definitely. Yeah, definitely some names there that I wasn't expecting. And now, what about some of the worst net point performances? Yeah, again, these kind of surprise me because, mm -hmm. um, you know, the the worst in a final is actually uh, Nat Butler, who's at Medhurst at the time. Yep. Um, the Magpies semi-final loss in 2019, she recorded mm -hmm. negative 38 net points. Mm -hmm. So it can 
kind of go to show these really high quality players can have those uh, mm. one-off bad performances. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then another high negative points was uh, Emma Kosh in the Fever's 2020 semi-final win. She had negative 25 net points. So um, not not ones they probably look back on as proud of, but you know, in Emma Kosh's circumstance there, they still got the win. Yeah, but it's interesting though that um, I didn't I didn't sort of pick any names off off the top, which I probably should have done about, you know, those players that do stand up. But for Jeeva Mental, Laura Geitz and Aiken George to be on that list definitely feels bang on, especially as you say, probably Geitz and Aiken George would have been in those um, those great teams of the Firebirds together. Looking to buy a property in the near future and overwhelmed with all the paperwork you just know is coming your way? The endless electronic forms where it feels you feel like the same thing over and over? Well, with All-in-One Property, you can forget the stress and lose the hassle. That's because All-in-One Property is a dedicated property service provider, helping buyers with all their conveyancing, finance, insurance, and even property law issues that come along with buying a property, whether it's your first or fifth. Let someone else handle all the tricky stuff. Visit allinoneprop.com or call 03-99-82-4491 to discover how you can benefit from the streamlined property transfer process. It's now time for Fox Answers the Fans. Listener Pace Kelly, who goes by bpacey77 on Twitter, Aaron asks, which is the best position to finish in the top four to go on and win the grand final, i.e. have the most grand final winners finished first or second after the regular season? What's the mm, sweet it, spot? This is a good question because, yeah, I think in recent years it's been noticeable that um, those minor premiers haven't fared so well in the finals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so decided to look at this over the Super Netball years, which is 2017 to 2022, um, because I couldn't be bothered going back and dealing <laughs> with when they had conferences and things like that. Fair call. Um, yeah, that didn't really make sense to me. So... 2017 and 2018, the Lightning were the uh, premiers. And in those years, they finished second and third, respectively. 2019, you go on to the Swiss winning and they were second place on the ladder at the end of the season. 2020, the the Vixens were the the premiers and they actually did finish first on the ladder. So that's the the only time we've actually seen a minor premier win Mm. the, the actual premiership. And then 2021, the Swifts again, they were third place. And in 2022, the Fever were second place. So when you look across these six years, second place has won on three occasions, third place on two occasions, and first place only once. Mm. And, you know, based on the teams we've got left, um, it's not, I mean, fourth has never come through and won, and that's not going to happen this year. Uh, But... Based on what's happened in previous years, it's not looking great for the Swift. <laughs> That's very true. I think there's a discussion to be had here as well about the psychology of confidence and momentum and a lot of other things as well because different teams handle pressure or finishing first or having the second chance or not having the second chance all differently. I can't help but think that the fever losing that double chance has really galvanised them to you know, mm. they they love they love don't we Western Australians love that kind of backs against the wall, us against the world narrative. So I think that's why I'm tipping the fever this week. Big part of why I'll be t- tipping the fever this weekend. I think. Well, I think it's going to be interesting when we dive deeper into this in our special episode you're about to mention. Mm-hmm. I believe, Erin. Um, in this context, I haven't looked into it too in depth yet, but 
when those second place teams are winning the premiership, did they win in that first week? Did they yes. lose in that first week? Is like that I think that would be interesting to delve into. So yeah, going all the way through. I'm gonna hand that segue over to yes. you to beautiful. Wrap it up. We're just solid professionals. Look, that was a was a great question for um Fox Answers the fans. Um, thank you so much to um Pace Kelly for that. But as um Aaron just mentioned, we've got a heap of questions we've been collecting over the season, and also heaps of have been DM'd to us in in recent days after we did some call out on social media about it. So we are working on. On that bonus episode, it's going to be hitting your feed early next week. So some extra goodness for grand final week, whole episode dedicated to Fox answers the fans, um, more Aaron, less Aaron, which is always good. And we've already got some really brilliant top topics to tackle. Aaron just teased one of them there, but we've also got some related to the diamonds, which we don't normally do too much about it. So you definitely don't want to miss that. We'll let you know when it's coming. We'll also, of course, have our regular podcast um, looking back at the preliminary final and towards the grand final. So it's going to be a busy time for us, Aaron. I don't think I've seen any come through that are going to really stump me yet. So oh, that's famous you know, in the next couple of days, <laughs> send in the curly ones, send in the obscure ones, the weird random stats. Something to do with conferences from the previous Trans-Tasman competition, perhaps? Uh, yeah, no, I don't, I don't <laughs> want to look at that. Nothing geographical, please. Okay, so now it's time to check out, speaking of predictions, how your shot in the dark went for the semi-final round just finished. So in your prediction last week, Aaron, you were focused on margins. You told us that in recent years, the margins in this first round of finals haven't been especially close. So you thought this would change this year and named an average margin of less than four goals. And my goodness, it was so, so close. So close. This was 4.5 when you add Mm, up the two and get the average. Yeah, see, I knew I was going to have to correct you here, Aaron, um, because your average calculation is wrong because I I think, you know, you've got the right number for the Fever Vixens. The margin for that was seven. But the true margin at full time for Thunderbird Swift was zero. Like I... Full time is at the end of the game. No, no. The margin for this was tied. Extra time does not change that. And so the average (laughs) across the weekend was actually 3.5. So I'm giving myself a tick. (laughs) I mean, Siri, show me clutching at straws. This is is where we're at. This is where we're at. The final score in that game, the final score, recorded score in champion data in 10 years time when someone looks it up, the margin is two. Isn't Mm. it, Aaron? I mean, I'll give you that, but I'm still going to give me the uh, Now, Erin, uh, this is usually the time where I introduce Della Bluntly, but this yes. week you wanted to do something different. You asked me to do more yes. work instead For sure. ahead of the preliminary final. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Look, sorry about that. We don't usually look ahead to the next game, but I do think it'd be cool at this juncture to have a look at some of the stats that matter in the preliminary final between Fever and Swifts, which of course has been played in Sydney on Saturday. The winner of that will go through to the grand final. The Thunderbirds are awaiting them. They have the week off. So firstly, maybe I just thought we could take a quick look at their meetings already this season um, and some key stats or some things that you thought were key stats, Aaron. Yeah, there's so it, it's really good to to contrast these matches because in round four the Swifts lost to the Fever sixty seven to seventy eight, 
Uh, and then in round nine, the Swifts beat the Fever 65 to 64. So it's good to have a win and a loss to contrast. And there are some mm-hmm. differences across these matches uh, in statistics that we do talk about quite a bit. So the center pass to goal percentage has been something that the Fever has been quite good at and the Swifts have been quite good at as well. And they were pretty high across both matches. Yeah. Uh, in, in the one the Swifts lost, they were at 74% and they jumped up to 80% in the match they won. Uh, whereas the fever stayed around the same, being 82 and 83%. Uh, the gains um, in the, the fever's win, they were 16 to the Swiss 8. In the loss, uh, in the fever's loss, they still had more gains than the Swifts being 10 to 7, but you can see the difference there, mm-hmm. um, that the fever's gains coming down. Mm-hmm. Um Penalties uh, were something that also differed in the, the win versus loss for the Swifts and the Fever. So in the match the Swifts lost, they mm-hmm. were 60 penalties to the Fever's 49, yeah, whereas difference. in the other match it was 53 each. So the Swifts kind of coming down there, the Fever going up a little bit. Yeah. And perhaps one of the biggest differences in the uh, win versus loss between these two teams, in the Fever's win, the Super Shots were eight each. Mm-hmm. But in the match, the Swifts won by only one goal, mind you. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had 10 super shots to the Fever's three. Yeah, yeah, significant. Uh, and so, I mean, if we, we look at these are the key sort of stats for this mm-hmm. matchup. Um, and, you know, the if, if you think back to the, the numbers we presented there, the Swifts scored about the same in yep. both matches whereas the Fever varied by 14 goals in their win versus loss. So obviously slowing down the Fever's scoring is key for the Swifts winning. Um, You know, the Fever have had very high centre-pass-to-goal percentage in both of these matches and bringing that down, where the Fever have lost this year, they've kind of struggled in that metric, so that would be a key focus for the Swifts, I think. Yeah, um, and and like I said, there was a big difference in gains in the Fever's win versus when they lost to the Swifts. And so, you know, looking after the, the Swifts, looking after the ball, it's it's basic netball, yep. right? But yep. against Something a team they, like the Feet, yeah. the Fever, you have to. Yep. And just looking quickly at some individuals, Helen Housby, someone we've talked about a lot already this season, really a barometer for them. How do you, yeah, how do you sort of see her numbers and what might she need to do? Yeah, again, big contrast in the win versus loss for the, the Swifts and Fever matchups. When they beat the Fever, she was at 122.5 net points. In their loss, she was at 47.5. Um, yeah. And we talked a couple of weeks ago how um, having Housby as a scorer and a feeder mm. seems to be pretty key to the Swifts winning. So when they beat the Fever, she had more feeds, more feeds with attempts, more goal assists than when they lost. Mm. Um, And there was also a big difference in her general play turnovers. When they beat the Fever, she only had one. When they lost to the Fever, she had five. So it's clearly a a real barometer for this matchup. Yeah, and it's obviously a real focus, I think, for Dan Ryan is putting that pressure. I mean, it happens to her every week. Um, If you can put pressure on her and her hands outside the the ring, maybe you can cause some of those turnovers. Um, And what about... Courtney Bruce then um, talk to me a little bit about her and this game. Yeah, she seemed to be the standout player from the Fever with big differences in a couple of key statistics um, in the wins versus loss. So when the Fever beat the Swifts, she had nine games 
And when they lost, she only had four. Yeah. And that um, also came about in the net points where she had 91 in their win and 56 and a half in their loss. So I think a lot of that um, ability to turn the ball over from the the Swift side um, is coming from Courtney Bruce down that defensive end. Yep. So now you know more about these stats than anyone else does. What's your shot in the dark for the preliminary final? please. Yeah, and I'm also this... going to get a tip from you, which we don't normally do, but I am. Okay. Um, so I guess there's not much to go from the shot in the dark this week. There's one match. So mm-hmm. that's what we're focusing on. And based on our statistical review, I'm kind of splitting the prediction this week and okay. trying to provide some key metrics that I think if each team hits, they'll win. Okay. Cool. So the Swifts will win if they force the Fever's centre pass to goal percentage below 75%. Okay. Helen Housby gets greater than 90 net points. Yep. And the Swift's general play turnovers are less than 15. I don't really think they can lose if they meet all of those. I was going to say, so all three of those things have to have to happen, Aaron. Well, if, if this is my, if all three happen, then they definitely win, I, I think. Um, Love and it. on the flip side, yep. the Fever definitely win if all of these things happen. Okay. Helen Housby gets less than 15 feeds. Mm-hmm. Janiel Fowler scores greater than 70 goals. Yep. Uh, but perhaps the big one here, I think, is the Fever get more than 10 games with a gain to goal percentage greater than 70%. Oof. Like I don't, I don't okay. see the Fever losing if they meet those. Okay, so that's a bit of a vixen's edge there with the 10 gains. I love it. Mm. What is your tip? I want a winner and a margin, please. Uh, I'm sorry to Swiss fans, but I'm feeling a straight sets exit and I think the Fever will win by four. Okay. Okay. Well, for what it's worth, I think it'd be fever. And I think it might be nine or 10. I think they're going to be full of running. And once they get on top, we might see some of those super shots rain down in the last quarter that everyone loves to watch. Well, that's a wrap for our latest episode. Please be sure to follow us as always on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is always at RealVFeel. And we are still looking for your Fox Answers the Fans questions for our special episode, so please keep them coming with hashtag RealVFeel. This podcast isn't possible without All in One Property, which offers a suite of property services under one roof, covering conveyancing, finance, insurance, and property law. All in One Property streamlines the process, helping buyers access all the services they need in one place. Visit allinoneprop.com to find out more.